This week's episode of Uncommon Deeds is brought to you by Barry Tile and Morrison Clark, located on the South Barry Road, 802-476-0912, celebrating 50 years in 2022. Also brought to you by Bushy's Generator Sales and Service in Brookfield and Springfield, Vermont, serving all of New England. We keep your power on. Bushy'sGenerator.com, 802-591-1903. I'm Justin St. Louis. I'm Tom Corbett. And this is Uncommon Deeds. The time has come, everybody. We have made it. We have made it. This was the biggest buildup we've ever had for a single podcast. At like a week and a half. Uh, yeah. Probably the most anticipated podcast we've had for not only the listeners, for Justin and I as well. We've talked about it. We weren't sure whether or not we were going to be able to make this happen. And once again, thank you to Ashley Squire for coming through. And I think she worked harder almost than we did to make this happen. Yeah, for sure. And Lisa Hallstrom too. Um, big appreciation of them. This one's the big payoff, you know, uh, we named this we named this podcast Uncommon Deeds um, as a tribute slash ripoff. Tip of the uh, hat, I like to say. <laughs> we did get permission. I don't know. This one is just something different. It's 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 real special for both of us. And um, we drove up to Stowe, Waterbury. I'm not sure exactly where the town line is, but Waterbury. Um, yeah, I guess it's still Waterbury back in early January and we didn't know what we were going to get on the drive up there. We didn't know what we were going to get when we walked in the door and it was assumed or not, not assumed, but understood that our sit down and our discussion with Ken may never make it to air. Um, You know, he's not in the best of health. Um, he is aging and he's got his good days and his bad days and nobody was sure what we were walking into. And that includes his daughter, Ashley, man, that dude was on, he was on fire that day. Wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. And just to kind of add on to what Justin said, even going well, we weren't sure if we were going to get a half hour, 25 minutes, an hour, we ended up with about an hour and a half. Yeah. Which is incredible. Yeah. And it's all, it's all good stuff, man. I have listened to it a few times and I've probably put more time editing this podcast than I did any of our other podcasts just because I really wanted it to sound good and professional for this episode. And of course we get, if you listen carefully, we have Robbie Crouch making cinnamon raisin toast in the background at one point, (laughs) a dog with a chain collar shaking around quite a bit. Yeah. But Ken sounds great. 
Justin got, drifts away from his microphone yeah, from time yeah. to time. It was really a relief to me that we didn't talk NASCAR. And I think you mentioned it in one of the episodes that we sort of used to build this up that, you know, everybody's heard the story of Daytona 1979 and the fight and the live call with CBS and everybody's seen the interviews and the, the clip of him on pit road at Greenville in 1971, the first ever live NASCAR. We didn't want any of that stuff because it's all been done. We wanted to know about the real beginnings, the roots of Ken Squire's career. And we got it. Yeah. I mean, all the way back to, I don't think I'm giving anything too much away, but like, you know, thoroughbred horse racing. His mother was a big fan, his father, things like that. All the way up to, you know, the process of building Thunder Road and especially Catamount. We went, you know, kind of deep into those. T-Bone Steakhouse. Yes. Jazz music. We did a good amount on jazz music. I mean, it's a very broad conversation that I'm very proud of. Yeah, I am too. Um, I'm proud of us. You know, I feel like we way overprepared as we do. And we also realized both of us early in the, I hate the word interview in the, in the discussion that we weren't getting to all of that. (laughs) And we, I think we picked and we chose the right, directions to travel down we did touch on the development of the in-car camera you know a little bit with the nascar stuff and we got a hilarious story two hilarious stories out of it um enjoy yeah and and just gonna say enjoy we don't want to keep giving stuff away um there are some things that we did not get to or, or even mention that I feel, you know, just for context would be, you know, probably suitable here. Thunder road opened in 1960. Ken Squire built it with some partners. He was 25 years old and built a racetrack. He'd already been involved in the sport for 10 years, more than 10 years at that point. Um, as a, as a teenager, he was promoting races and organizing races. Um, so we're talking late forties, early fifties, you know, he became a prominent sports broadcaster, not just of stock car racing, but he did the Olympics and what better time than right now to think back to 92 and 94, when he was doing the, um, short track speed skating calling it like a stock car race. Um, it was pretty fantastic. And there's clips on YouTube. Um, if you, if you have a a few moments, um, go look for the 1992, uh, women's 500 meter short track gold. Um, and it's absolutely, if you close your eyes, you're, you can picture late models coming out of turn four at Thunder road with Ken on the call. It's amazing. Um, the guy is, is a, brilliant brilliant mind absolutely and you know there's certain stuff like hindsight like oh wish we'd hit on but 
Definitely no regrets. The door is open for for a part two. Yeah, and um, and Robbie, who is now Ken's son-in-law, of course, <laughs> invited us to start a new project and and take Ken on the road, coast to coast, and interview old drivers. So look for that coming soon. <laughs> Maybe not, but it's a great it's idea. Yeah. Speaking. Of Robbie Crouch. I would just like to point out. Yeah. Thunder Road broke some news. Robbie is returning to Thunder Road as a car owner. And going to be working with uh, Evan Hallstrom and that family. I think he's going to put in some, some time maybe during practices. He might get behind the wheel again. But just to point out, we could have. We could have we broke could've. that news. You hear about it in at the end of this podcast. We knew first. So even though someone else it. said it, even though someone else said it, I'd just like to say, suck it. We knew it first. <laughs> you mentioned it maybe in the Mike Berry episode. You you teased at it. You didn't say the name, but you you mentioned something about a, a former driver coming back. So we we broke the news. We just didn't say the name. Right. Well, I think we just people know. You guys know. We didn't say it, but you knew. You knew we knew. You know we know. We and we knew. know that you know we know. Uh, on that Let's note, get to it, shall we? <laughs> want to uh, take a moment talk about Massetti Brothers custom vinyl lettering. Established in 2005, office, truck, motorsports, logo design, which Paul really enjoys doing logo design work, and he does a great job. He did all the logos for the Uncommon Deeds podcast. That was all him. Just, we told him a real vague description of what we wanted because we didn't even know what we wanted. And he came back, and there were no edits. There was no real going back, tweaking anything. He nailed it first go. So reach out, man. If you have logo designs, ideas, he can he can bring them to life for you. Open by appointment in Williamstown, 802-249-3763. You can email JP Massetti at gmail.com. Spell that for us, would you? M A S C I T T I. You can find him on Facebook too at Paul Massetti. Massetti Brothers custom vinyl lettering designed to win. Now, Paul and Massetti Brothers custom vinyl lettering is going to take a break from the podcast and hopefully we'll get a chance down the road to come together and work on a few things again, but dude, he was the OG. He was the first one who saw value in what we were bringing to the table and brought others to us that saw value in what we were doing. So can't thank Paul enough for, for hopping on board with us first. Well, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that we brought business to his door too. You know, the advertising quite literally paid off. Um, there were several uh, people who approached Paul and I know of at least two 
that became new customers of his because of his relationship with this show. So that makes, that makes us feel good. Um, I'm glad that Paul saw some return on his investment with us. Um, and I hope that that happens with all of our other advertisers and partners and yada, yada. And we've got, you know, some great ones. Um, but again, Paul was the first. So uh, thanks to him and the door is always open for him to come back. Of course, by the way, you mentioned Massetti brothers. So let's talk about the other brother here is, uh, or uh, I don't know. They have more, are there more brothers than just, I think there's a Tito. There's a, a Tito. There's a, yep. There's a Jermaine sister, Janet. I'm out of Jackson's that I know. Yeah, that's, was... that's all I got. So MJ Massetti, <laughs> Paul's brother, Michael John, uh, he can take care of your home and keep you warm uh, all winter long. Get you ready for next year. Um, Pro Heat in East Montpelier, 802-479-9330. That's the office number. Or you can call MJ directly, 802-272-0964. Coming up on 20 years in April. And um, Pro Heat's going to take a break from the podcast as well. But as we ramp up towards his 20th anniversary, we expect that uh, MJ is going to come back on board with us. And again, thanks to to him for coming on board too. Um, Paul got in the door and then MJ followed right through. So huge thanks to uh to to the Massetti brothers. Um but yeah, if you need if you need to stay warm, because as we record this right now, oh, it's a balmy 28. That's the warmest it's been here in about three weeks. Um but uh if you're in central Vermont, get a hold of Pro Heat. As for today's show, I think we've built it up enough that we need to just put it out there for you. And I know there is no better introduction that Justin wants to give than this one. So let's let it roll. I'm going to read a quote to start this one. This was not a children's game played by adults. These were men that were so committed and believed so wholly in what they did that they were willing to take the risk. If one fell, the greatest tribute was to be there the next week to race in their honor. It was the kind of sport where those people who took those chances understood that. These were common people doing uncommon deeds. It was Bud Moore in World War II over in Europe. So much of what we know of racing and love came from those incredible people who fought for this nation. There were common men that did incredible deeds. And racing is full of those people and still is today. So that's what has always brought me back to this. Words spoken by Ken Squire. The... I guess the impetus of this show, Uncommon Deeds. Thank when? you for joining us. When? 2013. But I know you meant it before that, too. Yeah, it's a common thread. Yeah. Where did you come up with that notion, the Uncommon Deeds? I really don't know. It's, it just sort of fitted. That's what all those guys and women have always represented to me. They were uncommon deeds. It wasn't part of organized sport as America knew it. Whether it was a step above or different than the, the usual thoughts about what made up sports. It made it worthwhile. It was your neighbors. They were, and still are, I hope. <laughs> Do you remember when motorsports kind of came into your life? Yeah, I was five or six, and my dad did harness racing on WDEV. So I got hustled about to that, and my mother was a big advocate for uh, 
harness racing, standard breads. And that was fine with me, but it sure got boring in no time at all. But then there were those special fairs like Rutland and Essex that would have motor events, sports events, cars. And uh, I got one sniff of that, and I was gone. <laughs> Never looked back. And that was the big the big cars, right? The, the open wheelers, open seat. Well, the, uh, yeah, sprint cars. Yeah. I never think of them as big cars, but yes. And midgets. And midgets. Yeah. Was it the rush of the cars? Was it the smell? Was it the sight, the taste? I think what? the sound as much as that yeah. anything was so overwhelming. And and then the, the visual attraction of it. And in those days... Uh, that Eastern AAA mm-hmm. was really an incredible series. Sam uh, Nunes? Uh, Sam. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was predicated <laughs> on those guys from Pennsylvania that would come up. And that's, and the leader of that was Tommy Heinerschitz, yeah. who was just a remarkable driver and a pretty remarkable fellow. Years later, I was somewhere... I think in Charlotte, and A.J. came around the corner and said, you come with me. I want to show you a real driver. Oh, boy, this will be good. And uh, it was good because we walked back in between the buildings, and and, uh, there was Tommy Heinerschitz. And I thought, wow. And uh, A.J. really recognized him for the talent that he had, and he had a real talent. Won a lot of races Went to Indy, I think, three times. Not much like good there, because he was a dirt track driver in sprint cars. But a lovely man, yeah. Those were the days when, at those fairgrounds races, at Essex, at Rutland, uh, that the 500 winners were there. Well, there'd be one or two. Yeah. Uh, you could rely upon uh, the promoter to find himself a couple of names that he could establish and put up on the top. And then uh, the rest of the field was Eastern drivers, mm-hmm. and they were good races. Yep. They were fun to watch. As I understand it, uh, Chris Economaki was the voice at that time. Well, yeah, uh, I don't think immediately. Uh, he was in the service and came back and got reintegrated into what was going on in New Jersey. And he was a good announcer, and Sam Nunes thought he was a good announcer. <laughs> but he was willing to advocate that to, to uh, Chris Economaki because he could also give him all the promotion papers and so forth and publicity papers. So he'd pay Chris to come up, for instance, to Essex, and he'd come up three or four days in advance and set up interviews and, and get stories out about who was coming and why they were of relevance in the motorsports world, which was foreign to everyone at that time. That wasn't in the racing game. Right. Yep. At that point, Justin had you know, 1950, there were 23, I think, active tracks in Vermont. Four in just Colchester were all like exciting and was it 
the place to be? Well, I can't speak for all of them, but, but they certainly, and, and particularly in Chittenden County, they were fun, and it was the usual story. It was not the common sport in any stretch of the imagination. And there were homemade rules or homemade cars, homemade races. And so it really had a sense to it that it was really an agricultural show. And a lot of people have lost track of that. It didn't got lost in the Midwest because those IndyCar drivers, for the most part, came from right around there, Indiana, Ohio. They were good people, and they enjoyed doing something different from everyone else and were willing to take the time to do it, which was a lot of time because there weren't any nearby tracks for those guys. Were people traveling at that point, or was it all just each track had their own little group of yeah. local guys? Yes. Or were some people already starting to move around? Well, there wasn't that much move around. Because it was it was a local indulgence, and uh, they'd build their cars for where they were, and they'd have the Morrisville had its own set of that really went up to the uh, through the kingdom, and then there were the Burlington cars, and then there was Northfield, and that was another group of cars. Once in a while, there would be some cross parency in there, but not not a lot. That would have been something unusual if they all got to one place at the same time. Got some old pictures here. And this is from the Sheldon Fairgrounds. You got Jackie Peterson in that picture. Speed. Yep. And uh, Art Prairie from over to New York. Yep. Is this about the time that you started to get involved? Yes. And probably the three sprint cars is all they had, I would guess. Yeah, three or four. And that was based out of uh, the uh, Albany, New York area. Yep. So if you're involved at that time, late 40s, early 50s, that puts you at, what, 14, 15 years old? A little earlier than that. Really? Yeah. Because my dad would do the harness racing at the fairs, uh, or WDEV would, and yeah. he would be part of the announce team. And if you had to sit through, and I had to sit through because my mother was a great enthusiast <laughs> for um, standard bird racing. And that was the game of choice at a fair in Vermont. It was harness racing. And as you know, there were some very, very good harness race teams out of Vermont in that area. I mean, really good set track. And, and one of them from Waterbury won the uh, Hamiltonian twice. Was your dad, when you told him kind of the motorsports was... You were leaning that, you really liked that, and that was your passion. Was he supportive of that? Not, well, yeah. I mean, he, he liked racing, and he liked to go to see the race cars once in a while, but he wasn't a serious advocate. Mm-hmm. He didn't have time trying to keep the station going. But the other thing was that WDEV was a rural station, a farm station. So we did all of those fairs uh, from the top. Lindenville, mm-hmm. Morrisville. I, I found an article from 1951 that you and Brian Harwood organized a race at the Barton Fair at age 16. I don't think Brian was so much in that. I was, and I can't think who else was. 
Yeah, the Orleans County Fairgrounds. Sure. Great fairgrounds and still there with different fences than when we were there because stock cars tore everything up. They were told not to get into the fences. No, it didn't listen. It didn't listen. No. It didn't go. There, you mentioned that, and I don't want to dwell too far on this 1950 era, but there was a serious accident in Colchester that shut everything down in 1950. Do you remember anything about that? The state became involved, and there were some fans that got injured. There was a couple fatal accidents in southern Vermont, Manchester, and, and Fairhaven. I know that they had a, you know. <laughs> a serious circumstance with the Essex Fair. Yes. And uh, yep. that was locally promoted show. Yeah. It was a story of so many of those tracks. The control of audience, participants, officials mm-hmm. was lacking. Yeah. And that's what happened at Essex and... Uh, this guy kept walking out onto the track. and Drunk, after, too, right? <laughs> I don't know that he was drunk. No. But he sure got hit yeah. right underneath me. And I, I was announcing that day. And that was an awful thing. They posted the pictures on the front page of the Free Press. Yes, they did. Terrible. And, and yeah. the best pictures were taken by the Times Argus. Yeah. Yeah, because that guy was standing beside me when I was announcing. And he just and, and got that shot when the thing happened. Yeah. And it was a big message. Couldn't be run like that. Yeah. Gosh, I wish I'd have thought about it, that that's where you were going, because that guy that hit him was a nice fellow from Essex Junction. And the fellow that got hit was the fellow that ran the roller rink oh. down in Burlington. Okay. Yep. And those were heavy, square, squatty, a lot of cast iron in them. And started that. And precipitated the idea that there had to be something more than just stand back and let them go through. So right from the beginning, there was a need for some regulation. And I don't think the state was particularly excited about <laughs> being in the racing I mean, business. They're still not. <laughs> and they, uh, but, they, but they set up a, a council and they set up some rules and they got it started right, I thought. that w- It was necessary if you are going to try to run a race yeah. professional in Vermont. And they did a far better job than surrounding states. Connecticut, that was a mess. And st- to my mind, still is. Uh, the, s- the state has too much to say. And in Vermont, it had enough to say to make sure that the gates were set up and there were people there to negotiate who went where. That made a big difference because year to four, you know, on a half-mile track, you'd wait for the horses to go by and you could swing across the track. You couldn't do that here. It was a whole new experience and they weren't ready for it and then things happened. What do you remember about your driving career at Mallet's Bay. Very little. <laughs> Is that on purpose? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I had it in my mind I was going to go to Indianapolis. Not even a question. And uh, that got sidetracked. For one thing, I could talk good, according to some. And still the same sum. 
But that was one thing because uh, it turned out the announcers for the races, they added a luster to them and, and some thinking that was beyond just cars going around in circles. And there were two or three guys that were very, very good, but the sugared off, and there was one, and that was Economaki, who then became the promoter for newness on these races because he had, he'd do 40 fires a year. And somebody had to go there and had to fix the track, prepare the track, prepare what was needed from their side. And Chris did a bang-up job. And then he would announce the show. And there was nobody quite like him. There were some other announcers, and they were darn good. Irish Horan was one of them, who then started a stunt show of his own and peeled off. But uh, Chris Economaki, as far as Essex and Rutland, Eastern States Exposition, yep. had a tremendous program. Yep. And uh, he would be in charge of getting the right people in the right place and getting the thing organized to operate with the locals that were the management of those facilities to keep from getting people hurt. It was pretty serious stuff, and Chris was great at it. And the other part was that he would bring the drivers with him, and so we got to see some darn good drivers at a very early time. The promoter would hire them to bring a car and, and do five races or so. So you'd see them for a while. And originally, uh, there was always one or two for those fair shows that had real experience at Indianapolis and were so important to the show because they gave it the lift that it needed. Mm -hmm. And then the others were what became URC, United Racing. He got them all together and made a show out of it. And he had a whole bunch of stunts that were just typical economy. And uh, Sam wanted a, always a special event. And uh, the top drivers would come out, four or five of them, in one event for five laps or yeah. ten laps. And the crowd would vote for who they wanted in the show. And, really? You know, yeah. And so... That sand would go down and stand behind each one, and Chris would give their credits or the credits that he made up for them on the spot. <laughs> and uh, then at a point, he'd announce that the three or four top ones would be the ones that would be in the special way, just for this track. And it didn't, and it always worked out the same way. There was too much controversy about who should be in it. And so <laughs> Sam would say, let them all go, which became the title oh, of his book. That's, that's where, where that, that came is. from. Okay. And that goes right back to Rutland and Barry uh, uh, to um, Essex Junction. Let them all go. And the crowd would go crazy. Well, that would be five or six of them that could really get the work done. And uh, it was a fun time. There's some circus in that. Oh, there always was, yeah. And see, that's what Economaki understood better than anybody. And all the lines that I stole originally and take credit for were all <laughs> from Brother Economaki, you know. 
hearing him announce the start of a day at Essex Junction or Rutland or Eastern States, wherever you wanted it, was always, ladies and gentlemen, in a matter of moments, Indianapolis All-Stars in bobtail streamliners will be circulating around your great racing facility here looking for new track records. And nothing has happened, you know. But he would he would go from there and sell tickets to the fairgrounds center. Yeah. It would be a grandstand. And he was as good as anyone I ever knew. And, and so many of them did that because that was part of it. There had to be the, the feeling that this was something more than just another bunch of cars running around yeah. at an old fairgrounds. And he would lift that place up into a place of magic. And he'd have all these stars, and it was wonderful to hear him do it. Bobtail streamliners. It really sounds like Yeah, something. it was. Yeah. And, uh, and when he'd get to introduce, he would talk about some of them separately. And he made them into something more than they sometimes were. But it was good show business. And it worked. And, you know, for folks that lived in Vermont and didn't get to see cars run in New Jersey or Pennsylvania, it was quite a deal. Well, the biggest lesson that you ever taught Tom and I doing radio was never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Well, that, that's, that's the that's oldest the line of the promoter yeah. who would give uh, Chris his walking orders to come up to Vermont with these races on. And he, had, and he had it laid out as to who the drivers were and who was supposed to be really spoken of and written about. And Chris would write the stories. So he would come with five or six stories about some pretty good guys that were in the show, and then there'd be the, the marquee. And Chris was so good at that. And but he gave you a real sense that you were seeing something special, and it wasn't cars going around in circles. It always had to be something special. And then he had these names, and, and uh, Bill Holland sure. was big one with those. And he ran a lot of races on tracks, and like Vermont tracks. Won a lot of races. Yeah, and he won a lot of races. But you put him against Tommy Heinrichs and some of those Pennsylvania guys, and you had a race. It's interesting, because you clearly ran with that. And we've talked to numerous people on the show who talk about your ability to help create stars, to do your part and creating storylines and rivalries yeah. to draw fans in. And we don't necessarily have that as much now. You don't hardly have it at all. And we were able, we talked to Russ Ingerson at his house and he showed us the wanted poster that you had made for the, the Ingerson three brothers. brothers. Yeah. Was that just... That was magic. Because it was true. I mean, here are three guys that worked in the woods over there in New Hampshire. And they all were committed to racing. And one broke through, Leland, and yep. then along came the other two. And it made for a great program. And they always had good-looking equipment. They drove for people that were proud of what they were doing. And so the cars looked good. According to Russ, he said... The wives, the brothers' wives, got together 
and came and talked to you to have you pull out the wanted poster from the ads because they were worried about people coming after them. In the <laughs> woods. Wanted, yeah, yeah. actual wanted. <laughs> that didn't bother me much. <laughs> Thought I'd succeeded. Yeah. So yeah. that's that's in the very early stages of Thunder Road. That was pre-Thunder Road. Well, and but it built into that era. Well, it was always in my mind that, that we needed a real track, not just fairgrounds tracks, because yep. they were cumbersome, difficult to organize, and really yep. were scary situations yep. so much of the time. Mm-hmm. And to build a track that would be safe for the public and safe for the cars, as safe as you could make it, was a real challenge and it was something i thought needed to happen and it happened with these guys right here the cooley brothers that's right and yourself yep 1960 thunder road opened yeah and you're only you're still a kid i mean you're 25 yeah but it was before that that we began to talk with people about sure putting a track together sure sure we talked about burlington and burlington had five tracks yeah yeah that worked for them and against them. But they had a cadre of really good guys that knew what they were doing and building cars, and that was very rare. Yeah. There was this other group up in Newport. Their cars were not as sophisticated. They, they were stock cars, blunderbusses, and, but they put on a good show. Yeah. And of the three Cooley brothers, the elder, the worker, was Ronald. He was something. They were in paving, but yeah. the, that wasn't the issue there. Uh, and then Reggie was a basketball player of, of notice, played for Montpelier High School, and set all kinds of basketball records. He, he was excellent. And Ray, who was the middle brother, went off to the service and came back and had a real interest in doing something like this, and he was the one I talked to first to see if we could think of what we could do to build a, a racetrack. He had friends that were working for the highway department in Vermont and came up with one that had an idea about what the track could look like. Yeah. And that's where the where Thunder Road came from. And. Take us back. I've got another picture. This is from one of the first couple of years. And the hillside is absolutely packed. Yeah, and And every week. And when I was working in the Thunder Road office, this is a bunch of years ago, but I found one of your old ledger books, and ticket sales were in the eight to 9,000 every Thursday night. That's right. Can you tell us the story about why you chose Thursdays? Well, first and foremost, when we finally decided that the place to do it, and we looked at some sites, uh, one was down at Taft's Corners. Oh. Yeah. We thought that would be... Really? Because it was... But that had a problem because the competition there was not other sports, but it was the lake. Sure. And people really cared about going out to the lake and fishing or swimming or whatever. And Burlington immediately had several tracks, Ivanhoe Smith's track, Colchester. And then Burgundy had the track out in the bay. In fact, there were two there. 
and uh, on in South Burlington. Yes. But Barry seemed to work because it was also a working man's town. There was no question about it. The kind of people that really loved racing were the kind of people that loved working, working with their hands, made some money, and some of them were willing to initiate race cars. So it became more and more a look at Montpelier, and that died quickly. But Barry, with all of those guys that got paid on Thursday, looked like a pretty good place if we could find a spot for it up there. And that thought was here. Sure looks like it. And it is like it. And that became a, a combination of not only Barry people, because they ran Northfield, which was a half-mile yeah. dirt track, most dangerous track in America. <clears throat> if you missed on the second turn, it was 65 feet straight down onto the Central Vermont Railway. <laughs> and that put uh, Rui Dubois' partner out of it in about the fifth or sixth week of the stay, and one guy just sailed off, and you could see him doing the cartwheels down onto the roof. And he got out fine. Some others were more concerned, yeah. concerning. <laughs> Barry, because of its just feeling, I mean, think about Barry sports teams and their hockey team, and the Barry Blackhawks and all that sort of thing. They were really into it if you gave them a chance. Well, the, the town was named as a result of a fist fight. Fist fight, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's... Properly so. That's the people you need. How, if you're going to name a city, you better have somebody to stick up for it. Yeah. <laughs> And that was Barry. Yeah. yeah. They were, that never changed. You know, it's st still true. Yeah. It's yes. funny because it gave you this, you might not have thought of it at the time, but it carved out this unique spot that only Thunder Road has in Thursday nights. Whereas we've seen whatever, Devil's Bowl. <laughs> we talked Grove about 10, that a lot. Because White there Mountain was, constantly yeah. flip-flopping days trying to find something yeah, that works. Find them because they, they had their dates and we said, well, the heck with that. We'll take Thursday night, because Thursday's when folks get paid in Barrie, Vermont, the granite workers. And uh, they were advocates. They, they liked it, and they liked what the sport was. And we, right off, within a year, had teams being built there by guys that didn't know a thing, one, about racing, but loved the idea of it. And there used to be a bar right there in the center of town. Or they would congregate and talk about what their team and what they were doing. It was wonderful. It, it really had a feel to it. And you wouldn't get that in the other towns. Yeah, it's it's funny you mention because the atmosphere is so much of yep. Thunder Road. And Justin and I have talked about it, being there as kids. Because yes. I went, my uncle raced for years. And Justin, obviously, his family and everything... And you mentioned the sound is what did it for you. And Thunder Road, you sit there, you wait for the gate to open, and you can hear the cars practice, but you can't see them. Yeah. And it builds up this anticipation. And when all the cars head in to go to the pits, yep. they drive by the ticket stand, and you had all these open trailers, and you're sitting there as a kid, and you get to see them all drive by, and it creates this buildup, especially yep. for kids, yep. where the atmosphere is just... Unmatched. 
Well, it was the mysticism that racing needs always, still has it at Daytona and some other places, where the people that do it are special. And boy, was that true of Barry. And it gave us Norm Shalou and a bunch of them that were great to work with. And they had good cars, which they beat up pretty well. Yeah, You had to if you were on the road. Here's a couple of those good cars. Oh, I know you'll know them. Yeah, Ronnie Marvin and Forsyth. Yeah. Forsyth was an addition. He was from Keene, New Hampshire. And he had been training B-51 pilots in World War II. I don't know that he did any combat missions, but that was his job. So he had a fair sense about how things should work. And he was winning everywhere. And uh, George Barber down in Bradford, he wanted a car and he wanted someone that he could rely upon. And his first choice was Leland Ingerson because Leland was guaranteed to be what racing was about. He was a woodsman and had those brothers. But George wanted somebody more professional. So he had Pappy Forsyth. Pappy didn't like to be called Pappy. We don't need to go into that. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but Roy Forsyth was of himself, and he had a garage in Keene, New Hampshire. And uh, I lost one girlfriend completely because I got caught up that year, and I went down and lived with George and that because that was the center of racing at one time. Bradford. No, Keene. Keen, Cheshire Fairgrounds. Yes. And Forsyth went there all the time. And he really understood what he was doing. So we hit it off pretty well. But he was of the old school. When he showed up, and he used, among other things that no one had seen, was a mask really? right from the beginning, which he got out of the B-17s. And uh, he thought that was relevant and needed and uh, because and it was true and as the years went by all I could think about was Roy Forsyth preaching this business about you can't run in smoky air and over and over again that's what everybody ran in and at Daytona they'd come in they'd under a lot of pressure and they would be out of it they wouldn't know what position they were in or what racetrack they were in He said, you can't do that. And he brought it up, and many followed because they thought he looked like a sissy. Yeah. No sissy was he. We were lucky because Roy Forsyth was, was one of a kind, and so were the good people in Bradford. And that's still a local track and run as a local track. It is. And it has its own cadre and its own officials and... It hasn't lost that flavor one bit. They still have the coops. And they have They're the coops. they nowhere else in the world. Yep. Yep. And they were special. And, but Bradford Auto Supply was, without a question, the car to beat yep. whenever he showed up. And he showed up regularly at Barry. He liked Barry. And he liked the crowds and, and all that sort of thing. And he was not a drinker which was kind of an exception at that time because most of those guys were guys that worked in the sheds, worked up on the hill in Barrie. And uh, 
So they would get a couple of beers or a couple of cases of beer, and they'd go up there and get out of work on Thursday and watch the cars go around and had a very good time of it. That was not where he was at. He wanted stuff that would make the car work better and not in any way get in the car's way. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot from Roy Forsyth. And he still has the record. Ten wins, yeah. five in a row. Yeah. In 1961. And everybody thought that the thing was cheated up, and it was just that George Barber was such an excellent car builder. And Ray Forsyth didn't spend much time over there in Bradford, but they talked enough. And that car worked well. Wherever you took it, it worked well. And so he'd go to places like uh, Stafford Springs yes, and win there frequently. And you wouldn't find many Vermonters that could go and run at Stafford. That mm-hmm. that was sort of top drawer racing. Yeah. And Forsyth could do it. How much did the fans enjoy you being able to kind of build these rivalries and you get the invaders coming in? Cabana, Andrews, these guys. Did that? Did the fans? I think love it helped. I don't think they. Uh, I don't think it, it didn't hurt anything because those guys could equal them with the rules, yeah. and they got the, a racing group from St. Johnsbury, Northeast Racing, yeah. and they had their own track, and they were conscientious people. Is Fleury, who was one of the cups in Claremont. I can't think of the other names, but they, they they represented a whole lot of what racing was to me. And Roy would go up there and race. But he was pretty careful about where he went. And he loved to come to Barry. And he got a good result, always, with the people. Yeah. There were some other major characters, and this guy is one of them, Ronnie Marvin, your first champion. Yep. Um, and then you've got Hard Luck Hannaford. Uh-huh. And you got Chester T. Woods, which is... T for tops. Yeah, T, yeah sure, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, that was, that have, was a homegrown uh, And I'm telling you, rudimentary. And yeah. the stories of the tractor seat are real, aren't they? They are. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He wouldn't run... Uh, he didn't want any of those fancy seats. He wanted a tractor seat in there, which he could get into and hold on to, yeah. in case it tipped over. <laughs> that was unbelievable. <laughs> But who were the other ones you spoke of? Well, there was a lot. Johnny Gamble, of course. Um, From St. Johnsbury. Sure. And yeah. he was the king of the Northeast Speedway, yep. St. Jay. And that track was a predecessor to Thunder Road. And he, he was terrific. Mother, and he was a nice guy. Yeah, a gentleman. Yeah, a gentleman. Yeah. Yeah. There were some other ones that came along shortly after the Coops when you, when you started with the Tiger Division. And this guy is one of them, too, Stubb Fadden. Oh, yeah. Stanley. The, the car that he didn't own, and his yeah. wife didn't understand what it was all about, that she owned it. Yeah. <laughs> Charlotte never got... I think he'd run a year before she found out that she owned the car. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and they were from North Haverhill. And there again, they were loggers, and they were hardworking people that cared so much about what was going on. And it was something that they could do. And there wasn't much. I mean, they wouldn't have gone to school and played baseball or any of that stuff. That, that wasn't for them. 
they were, they were working in the woods when they were sixth or seventh graders. And uh, this was something in the summertime he could do. Yeah. We've got Robbie and Ashley here, oh. of course. And Robbie just pointed at this picture of Lenny the Tiger Stockwell in his tiger stripe jacket. Yeah. And he was from down in Bethel. Yeah. Um, and and he was in this picture. I've got, uh, I'm upside down, but it looks like Tom Tiller and Larry That's Granger. Tom Tiller beside him. Yeah. Yep. Then you. And, and Tom Tiller was a guy who came up here in the military yep. and uh, decided he wanted to try. When he started out, he was 30 miles an hour. Really? And we saw him develop over the years. And he took his time and learned how to do it. And with such a help. Larry DeMar was a big star for a short time, not a long time. Well, because he, he wouldn't paint the car. Yeah. <laughs> he got in an awful, not a fist fight, but an argument. And so he lost the ride. And that was a Hardwick car. Yes. And the people over there were on the side of the owner, not the side of the driver. But he could handle the machine and make it do the things that were necessary to win Thunder Road. Yeah. Yes, indeed. 1963, the Flying Tiger Division is created. And whatever, however many years from now, whenever anybody looks back, they're going to look at, they're going to say the Flying Tigers. There was a need for the track to have a second division. It was a one-division track. And it needed to expand that so that guys could get a start and not have to race against the stars of those days mm-hmm. who were in a class by themselves. So the Flying Tigers was, was another World War II Chenault's group in China uh, that made sense. And they were Flying Tigers. <laughs> and they still are. Not only did you have a need for a second division, you had a need for a second track. And Catamount came along in 65. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is up in Burlington, in the location that you wanted. It was in the... Well, but we were probably wrong. You were wrong? Yeah. It's a beautiful track, and was a beautiful track. It was the best thing we ever did. And uh, it was in Burlington. And Burlington was oriented to the lake and that didn't fit it's as simple as that if you ran big events and you brought in outsiders or NASCAR people you could run there and get a big crowd but day to day they weren't interested that wasn't their cup of tea and that was too bad because that track was built on honor and it was we Ray Cooley and I went down to uh, Virginia and we measured up what was the track, Old Dominion. And they didn't know what they had for a track. They had done what so many did, you know, scraped it up, fixed it up, and and it worked. But when you talk to the guys that ran in the United Racing Club at that time and said, you know, where's the track where you can get the most competition per lap. I said, well, you've got to go to Virginia and take a look at that track. We did, and there was no question. They, they had done it right, 
And so that where you came off the corners, there was enough transition there to carry you well into the straightaways and give you a bolster in going into turn one if you knew how to drive it. That was a great track. We talked to Jean-Paul, and he told us that you used to have gentlemen's wagers with him, whether there would be more Canadian license plates at Catamount or Vermont license plates. Who said that, Cabana? Cabana said that. Yeah, Cabana understood. Now, see, there's another one. What a foreign name that is. And and he, he was so good. And he won all those races, and, and he loved Catamount Stadium because he could get around on things like that. And he understood it and how to drive it, how to set the car up, and change the settings if it needed. Yeah. Yeah, can't, I won't ever argue with any of them about John Paul. Well, and, and he was part of this era that we're moving into where you've got Dave Dion from Hudson, New Hampshire. Well, he's a much later. Well, it, that's fine, but they... As the Tigers transitioned to the the late model sportsman, yeah, and Catamount becomes yeah, and and Bobby Dragon, yeah. who was in the shadow of his brother, yeah. as he should have been, because Beaver had started out and he drove all those hocus pocus tracks that were supposed to be this or supposed to be that, and it'd be fun. Some of them were pavement and also dirt, and uh, he existed through that and loved it. Yeah and was good at it. That was an exception in the Burlington market uh, or the Dragon Brothers. And he followed along, and nobody thought that he would amount to too much for a while. With Beaver there, wrong. He was that good. He was Bobby. a good driver. Yeah. And he thought about the car and what it could do and what it couldn't do. And uh, it made a major difference. And it also, strangely enough, opened up the Burlington market for those that loved racing in Burlington, and there were people that loved it, to Thunder Road. Yeah. To bring them down to Barry. To bring it down there. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Dave Dion, yeah. Gee. But he was a guy that listened to the races on Armed Forces Radio, yeah. and he would hear those races of NASCAR and said, when I get out of here... That's what I'm going to do. And he came back, and that's exactly what he did. He was a good racer, and he understood what it was all about. A lot of people got into it and thought it was one thing and then discovered there was a lot more than that they thought it was. I'm thinking that this guy sitting next to me at the table was one of them, Robbie Crouch. Well, he came much later. Well, sure, but uh, there was a huge wave of, of new competitors that sort of came in with those late models, Robbie being one of them, Dion being one of them. Um, Dion came first. Yeah. He knew his way around. Before we kind of move forward, I have to ask this question for Justin because it's one of his passions, and I've heard him ask this question to many different guests. 1966 Milk Bowl. Russ Ingerson told us he won it. He's got a trophy for it. But it's excluded from the official records. Any idea why? So no. that year, there was 66 was the year that the Coops were taken out of Thunder Road and the, and the Tigers were the headline division. Yep. There was a driver's strike. Yep. The season started late, and then for some reason, the Milk Bowl was held but never counted 
in records. Was, I can't tell you. Yeah. That's, that's sort of everybody's answer that we've ever asked about it. It's Justin's white whale. That's my, that's, that's my Moby Dick that I'm, I'm going to chase that one forever and figure out why. I can't tell you. Yeah. <laughs> so with the late models comes the five nights a week circuit. San Air on Wednesdays. And everybody said it wouldn't work. Yeah. yeah. Barry on, on Thursdays. Uh, yeah, San Air Wednesday, Barry on Thursday, uh, Plattsburgh on Friday, Catamount on Saturday, and then Thunder Road Sunday afternoon and Devil's Bowl Sunday night. And throw in Seekonk and, and St. Yeah. Croix yeah. and wherever else. Well, yeah. Why? Why did you do it? How did you do it? Well, because the thing had reached out that Thunder Road had become a standard for the racing at that time. That's old history. And those cars and those drivers were popular. And C.J. Richards had a group down there, Fairhaven, that were pretty darn good. And to this day, will be remembered as pretty darn good. And it seemed like a chance to put it all together and see if we couldn't build a circuit that would amount to something. We probably overguessed it because it was a lot of racing, run four nights a week. But that's what they were doing down south. The thing about down south was their handicaps weren't handicaps. If you were on the pole, you were on the pole. You had a fast car. We didn't do it that way. We did it the other way. You had to work every race and put everything you had into it to get close to the top three and to win major special. It was, I thought, the right thing, and I still do, because the Southern racing at that time was a yawn because you had these great drivers, and they'd just lean on it and take them home. And the other guys would show up, and I couldn't figure out for why. didn't make any sense. Because unless somebody really had a smash-up or broke down, chance of moving into those top positions didn't exist in the South. And at most Southern tracks, that's still pretty much the case. But it's the old, old method. This goes back way before Barry, Vermont, way back in the 30s. That's what you did. That's what racing was. Mm -hmm. You qualified for it. You lined up and you raced because of where you had showed yourself eligible to be in the field or in the front of the field, that didn't make any sense for the spectators because it was a sleeper. New England weather is unpredictable, and when the power goes out, you'll need a backup plan. That's why you should call Bushy's Generator Sales and Service in Springfield and Brookfield, Vermont. Bushy's is the number one Briggs & Stratton dealer in the state of Vermont, and they'll help you every step of the way, from sales and installation of Kohler and Briggs and & Stratton home standby propane generators to service and maintenance on all makes and models of generators from 10 kilowatts to 200. Bushy's Generator Sales and Service has been in business for 10 years, and they cover all of Vermont and New Hampshire, as well as Massachusetts, Connecticut, and New York. If if you need a backup plan, call Bushy's Generator Sales and Service at 802-591-1903 or visit their Facebook page or bushysgenerator.com. Plus, you know, you can always talk racing with Ben because he's won a lot more races than I ever have. Bushy's Generator Sales and Service of Springfield and Brookfield, Vermont. We keep your power on. 
Dairy Tile and Morrison Clark Incorporated have got you covered, literally. They're your number one stop in central Vermont for all types of flooring, whether it's tile, carpet, hardwood, or any other type of flooring, indoor or outdoor, for your home or your business. Barry Tile staff are qualified installers who can offer you real-world flooring experience and knowledge that you don't always find in the big chain stores. But you don't need our endorsement. They've been family-owned and operated since 1972, which means they're celebrating 50 years in business in 2022, and that stands for itself. And hey, not only are they great at what they do, they're racers too. You got it, man. Check out Barry Tile's Facebook page to see some examples of their incredible work. You can call them the old-fashioned way, 802-476-0912, or just stop into the showroom, 889 South Barry Road in Barry, Vermont. And make sure that you tell them that the guys at Uncommon Deeds sent you. How did you come to meet and become friends with Tom Curley? As about this time, you go into business together, but it's not the racing business. It's the steak business. Yeah, well, he was a character, and he raced, and he raced at Thunder Road. He drove around. Well, he drove around, but a lot of people drove around. <laughs> Smashed up a lot of cars. What was that lady's name over in? Uh, Francis Lackey. Mrs. Lackey, yep. But he liked racing, and there was no question we needed a dynamic guy that cared about it. You couldn't find anybody that... Uh, was more dynamic than than Thomas Michael T Bone Curley. T Bone because he T boned so many crashes. He didn't know enough to back off, and he'd drive through anything in front of him. Does that is that why it's a steakhouse? I mean, did you use the nickname and build a restaurant, or was it just no, 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 we no, we were cookie. Yeah, remember his car owner. Yeah, and he was of the old school. He was the cook, and he and and. And this one, this is Tom Curley. We, we got to talking one time about what people didn't have anymore. And one of the things was their music. There wasn't anything that adults could go to that really appealed to them. It was all rock and roll and all that. Nothing wrong with it, but it didn't fit where many people came. And the demographic of certain group from, say, 40 on were left out unless they were really corked and weird. Uh, and we, I think that's still true. <laughs> yeah. But the music that fit and carried on through the generations, what was called Dixieland music, bad name. So we talked for a while and decided that what we could do was create a place adults to have as much fun as the kids were having. There we are. There we were out there in Mallets Bay. And fun was had? Had fun. Uh, My wife at the time was a part of it. But all of a sudden, that caught hold. And it was New Orleans music, which had moved to Chicago and gotten a bite on America and got heard more. So we said, "Why, why don't we do that? And so when the race is rubber, we'd have a place to go to. <laughs> and we got a place out there in Malice Bay, T-Bones. You whacked them twice a night in their, in their pocket. I wasn't like thinking that. of it that way. <laughs> Funny you should bring that yeah. up. I'm just, you mentioned the New Orleans music, the jazz. Is that why 
you had that passion for? Is that why there was always dinner jazz on DEV? No, not necessarily, because my, my business about jazz goes way back. At the time that I went away to school, and I went to Boston University, I worked for a fellow named George Ween. At that time, it started the Newport Jazz Festival. And he owned two clubs in Copley Square Hotel. And downstairs was the Dixieland room, which was a college room. And college musicians played there. Upstairs was a classroom in Ellington and Count Basie Mm. and Sarah and Ella. And those people were up there, way beyond where we were. But I, I got hired one winter to work there three nights a week. And I learned an awful lot. At the same time, we were still fussing around and uh, decided that Dixieland was the right way to go. And we created an album which sold pretty well. And what we did was take all of the instrumentation for a music group, Dixieland, front line of woodwind, trumpet, trombone, Mm -hmm. banjo, piano, drums, and uh, see what would happen. Jeez, when we opened in, in Burlington, every night of the week was pretty much full there. Maybe Tuesday would be slow, but after that it was packed. And it was those original Dixieland tunes, and then we had a guy that was a, a good arranger, played piano. So we took a lot of the music of that time and made it Dixieland music, and people loved it. And we thought we had the world by the string. And T wanted to open a place in Florida, which we did, Daytona Beach. And that would be full when the race, when the cars, racers were in town. But it was way down on the beach. It was at the end, Ponce Inlet. Sure. And it could get pretty quiet during the week in Daytona Beach. Mm-hmm. That that's, was not a, a mecca for music or anything else except rattlesnakes. That's how that came about. And the Salt City Six was a group from Syracuse, New York. He was a clarinet player and a darn good one. And he had a band that, that we used a lot. And then we had a, the, our own Dixieland band, college band, and would play the colleges around there and did very well. Finally, we really settled down, and the Salt City Six took hold and took root in Burlington. And they were terrific, and they played what we wanted, and they also were the ones that did a lot of the arranging of the Lennon-McCartney tunes. And what was the other one, A.J.? Sitting here loving you. and Will you still love me when I'm 64? Yeah, right. <laughs> it just was always full. It was people, and they had a good time, and there was three kinds of steak and Irish stew for Curly. Sure. And yeah. it worked. At the same time, you're now breaking into the MRN world with Bill France. So you've got two races. It wasn't MRN it was originally. It was, well, it's it was around, two. but in this same group of years, you've got the radio station, two racetracks, a couple of restaurants, and some interest in national racing. Yeah. Yep. Your 
you're a busy guy and kids. <laughs> and kids. <laughs> Unfortunately, kids. I screwed it up. I mean, were you ever home? <laughs> sure. Didn't want to ever leave Vermont. But it was a good place to be from and to come home to. Never changed. He was from Maine, Tom Curley. And he was kind of a lonesome character, but a great guy. And he liked to race. So he showed up at the racetrack, and I can't remember how many cars he destroyed, but it was quite a few. That's what I've heard. Now, that was something that you guys had in common, though, because you you tried your hand at racing a little bit, didn't you? Yes, I did. Yeah. How'd that go? Well, I learned a lot. (laughs) Still wish I could have done it. Because there's nothing more thrilling than to go down the straightaway, lift and get into the corner, pull up on somebody, and hopefully go by them, and not over them or into them or around them. It was a great game. And T-Bone understood that, and I understood him, and we had good years together and, and built that magnificent thing in Mallets Bay. So... Thunder Road goes through this crazy stretch from like 78 to 82 where you sell it to Tommy Calamoris in 78. It closes after six weeks. He defaults on the payments and all the court battles begin. And there's no racing at all in 81. Was that hard for you to see kind of your baby go through that? It was depressing because it was something... that we liked, and that's probably where the mistake was. If you, you get too close to it, you don't get straightened out. Why, why did you sell it? Because we had too many things going. And we thought we'd keep all the balls in the air. It's tricky. And out of it, and we didn't know it until we sold it, how the Catamount Stadium had developed far beyond what we thought it could develop in Burlington. And, uh, you know, should have, should have, could have, would have. Because that track was so magnificent. And anyone that ever raced there said that was the track. And the reason was we went down to Richmond and measured up that track that was so good and put in the same dimensions around that track that made it work. The transitions off the corners were just magnificent. And so when you got guys that were really good, those NASCAR guys that were touring, and NASCAR touring guys were getting more prevalent at that time, they loved the thing. Mm-hmm. They could put it where they wanted to and make it hold and have a chance of moving moving around and getting by people in the corners. So that's an interesting point. And there were a lot of Southern guys that would come up to no. Vermont in July, um, or or for the fall foliage race, uh, or the New England 300, rather. Um, and quite a few of them won at Catamount, but damn few did anything at Thunder Road. That's right. How were the fans with that? And, you know, you as a promoter must have loved, you know, the head-to-head, but how did the <laughs> fans treat it with... Well, they wanted to see the big names. Yeah. And NASCAR had the names. There's no question in those days of those that could run short track. 
But when you got them sugared off and you run them, I got the guys up here, came pretty even. Now, there was Dion fans and there were Dragon fans. But from what we've understood is that when Butch Lindley came to town, everybody is a Thunder Road fan and they're pulling for the home team, whoever it is. They just wanted to beat the Southerners. And that's kind of the point, isn't it? I guess it was. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yep. even if you're a Dion fan, you'll cheer for Dragon if he's got a chance to beat the Outsiders. Yeah, yeah and they and by that time, they were well enough educated in this part of the country to understand that those guys were something different and were really good at what they did. Yeah. And it was funny because so many of them came up and guys that I'd forgotten about, they weren't on my mind. But they thought that that Catamount Stadium was one of the best tracks in the country. The thing that made it work were the transitions off the corners. Off the corners. And they worked so well. So then, who the hell designed Thunder Road then? <laughs> because... <laughs> we did. Yeah, well, was that... <laughs> we did. You, didn't, you clearly didn't use a model from anywhere else for that. No. So no. whose idea was it to fall off the face of the earth and turn four? mean fall off the edge. Well, there's banking at Catamount to carry you. There wasn't at Thunder Road. That's it's right. Very different racetracks. And I'm not knocking Thunder Road. It's I that's hope what not. that's what makes <laughs> well, I that's hope what not. makes the place. But where you know, where did that idea come from? Was there planning for Thunder, for Thunder Road, Road? Or was it just drop a blade in the ground and no, no, no. We worked very hard on that and may not have got it all right, but it made it a hell of a racetrack. Well, I'm glad you got it wrong then. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you just didn't drive around it. You had to drive it, Yeah, and you really had to be a good driver to get around that thing. Jump ahead a little bit. In 85, NASCAR fires Tom Curley, and North Tour folds after the controversies with Robbie and LaJoy, Bobby Dragon's carburetor. How awkward, if that's the right word, is that for you? Because you're kind of in the middle doing the NASCAR stuff, and you're here, you're working with Tom. Are you trying to just pull yourself out of it? No. Or is everybody looking for you for to help them? No. Curly could stand up on his own feet, and he was a, he was a racer. And... The opportunity that I gained before that with Bill France, I couldn't give that up because that was the opportunity and the doorway to the future of American racing. And I was blessed because France Sr., I'd, I'd worked for him for two or three years. He'd go down for, for originally for three days. And then I'd go for a week, and then I'd go down there for the month of February. And before long, that came around, and Bill decided he wanted his own radio network, his own TV, and the one guy that knew something about that was me. And it was a great opportunity, and I couldn't give that up. And Curly was okay up here. He ran the races. He didn't. He 
I never had to worry about him with the money. He was as honest as the day is long. And I had this opportunity to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, wouldn't you know, and no lie at all, first there was the radio. And Bill France and Roger Bear, he had built Talladega, and they needed help. And I didn't want to give up here, but that, that was okay with them as long as I would do the broadcast. So I had the world, by, except I had to go back and forth all the time. And uh, that was a interesting time in my life because you were right there when NASCAR took a hard twist. Mm-hmm. And that started with Talladega yeah. and then immediately grew into other things. There was a couple of other organizations that thought they were going to run France out of business. That was not to be. The loyalties there and so forth, you couldn't get around it. But it was an interesting time to be there and see it unfold. It seems as though you had probably a couple of crossroads. Maybe it didn't come to this, but if it had, would you have chosen your role with NASCAR over Thunder Road if you had to if you had to get rid of one? I couldn't leave Vermont, no matter what. Understood. And they understood that. A lot of people didn't feel that way about where they came from, but with me it was a lot of things. And so I could always come back up here and think about what might have been. And then maybe the other stuff would go away. But it didn't. And instead it turned again. And when they got the Motor Racing Network started, and that was me and Roger Bear. And all of a sudden, we were in the radio business like I'd never been. And we carried, I, I don't know, 400 stations, right. 500 radio stations to carry the Great American Race. Thank you. And <laughs> still have trouble with that. They don't get it. That is the Great American the Race. Great American there's race. a lot of races, but there's one, yeah. and it's Daytona. Where, where did that come from? The Great American Race? Yeah. Actually, from Australia. I used to, because by then I was going over to uh, do races all over the world. And Australia is very paranoid and cares about their stuff. So they had the Great Australian Race. Bathurst. Bathurst. Never forget, I got invited to go to it. I went over. I went over to the world's strongest man, and we got over there to do that. And they had that race at Bathurst. And the guy there had heard me doing television, on, because they would take the races from Daytona and so forth and air them in Australia. He said, "Well, would you like to stay a week and see Bathurst?" And it took me about one second to say, I'm here. <laughs> and I got there, and it was, what, 2.6, 2.4 miles. It was a road course. Went up a mountain and then down a mountain. It was wonderful. And uh, they had stuff that I had never seen in my life, including in-car cameras. And at their one rehearsal deal, I called New York, and I said, I found something that we've got to have, and we've got to have it for Daytona next year. And that is the in-car camera 
and it turned out that there was three young men from Ireland who had gone down to Australia to start this thing. And it was phenomenal. Two for two. So I tell you, the funniest part of that was, uh, so now, and I had nothing to do. I just went and observed. And I called up and said, hey, these guys have got this thing figured out. And we were trying in-car cameras, and they were anyway from 45 to 62 pounds. Holy cow. And Benny Parsons had been kind enough, and he nearly killed me, <coughs> to go out and try it. And, you know, they threw the cars, the Daytona cars, totally out. But there was the potential that you could have a camera mounted beside the driver, and a guy could sit in a trailer back outside the thing, and he could turn the camera around, and you could look out the front, and you could look out the back, and you could look at the driver and look at his feet or look at his hands. My God, it just changed the entire sense of what racing was, and I couldn't wait to get back. Well, Chris was there, too, and he was working for ABC at the time. So there was a little race between Chris and I, and I got to CBS and said, you guys can't mess around. You have got to get into this thing because this is the new, the new world. I want to ask, I want to derail you just for a second at Bathurst, that first. Yeah. Uh, you told a great story oh, oh, about oh. the driver with the camera in the car. Yeah. So the day of the race, and the thing had a couple of long straightaways, a lot of, a lot of up and downhill. And they were really willing to show off. They were so thrilled with what they accomplished. And uh, so the producer said, I want to go to whatever car it was and says, well, let's follow him and what he's doing, and I want you to turn the car around and see what's after him. So the announcers were good, and they did exactly what they were told. And, and there was a real race. You looked out the front, and it was as boring as sport car racing. <laughs> I didn't say that. And, uh, Tom, uh, edit that out. Please. <laughs> but, uh, and then when you turned around, there was a guy banging on him and so forth. So it went on for a couple of laps. And then the track came down a hill, and it was about a half to three-quarters of a mile straight away, and then a 90-degree turn that brought them back by the finish line. And so we were just following along, and we're, the guy in the booth is now queued into what he's talking about. And so he had done the turnaround, Jesus, it was remarkable. I mean, it was just going up this mountain and walks were falling down on all this stuff. <laughs> He's going right through it. So now we're back inside the car, and Oswald Sitwell, or whatever his name was, was driving the car. <laughs> and he comes down to this straightaway. And they were talking to him. Right? Huh? They were talking to him, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, and so they said, uh, we're going to follow you through the, the left-hander that takes you back by the start-finish line. And he said, so when you get close to that, describe what you're going through as you take that turn. <laughs> and he came barreling down the mountain, got out on the straightaway, and he's going along, and he says, I'm going whatever. And now I'm going to shift from fifth down into fourth. And now 
As I approach the corner, I'm going to go down and get into third to go around the corner. <laughs> and hit the gears and brought it down. And then said, oh, oh shit! <laughs> and flew off the track <laughs> over a sandbag, <laughs> which was not planned. I, I hadn't asked him to do it. And I thought, fuck, we're home. This thing, this thing is, this is going to make it. Because... <laughs> On cue, he had performed this amazing oh. moment in sports. And I took the tape and shipped it home that night. <laughs> CBS called these guys, and they were at Daytona the next year. <laughs> he was out his elbows going around there, yeah. doing well. And, uh, but there was the potential. And what it was was allowing a spectator to ride Be with the, the driver. Car. It's great stuff. And not to stay on the on the point, but there was maybe the first year um, you had the camera with Kale Yarbrough. And we had it with Betty again first. And okay. Then well, there was, there was a year. Yeah. Um, and the video is on YouTube, and I've watched it, and it's wonderful. Yeah. Where throughout the race you're hearing this noise. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, that was his second year with Kale. I was in charge. I don't know. You probably don't know this though, because I was uh, had coerced everyone to get this thing, and uh, so I was in charge, <laughs> taking care of the responsibilities of the team and so forth, being in favor of it and going. And they didn't want to do it. None of them. They were all afraid of that weight, and particularly the camera was high. high. And uh, what the hell were they going to do? So, in practice. That every so often that car would would develop this harmonic as it would come to the corners on Daytona and it'd go right, and come around the corner and keep on going right and so we talked to the audio guy and said what the fuck are you doing this is awful you can't have this and uh, so there were these great mysteries nobody could figure out because their equipment. CBS, and they fiddled with it, and they changed everything, and it wouldn't work. It was there. It kept appearing. So I think it was maybe in the 125s, and it came up again. And I talked to, oh, and, and I had said, can we talk to you during the race? And everybody had said, you're bullshit. You're not going to get that. Nobody's going to allow you to do that in any of these races, to be actually driving, talking to the driver. And I said, well, let me, let me see what I can do. And I brought it up with Gail. <laughs> and I said, would you take the camera again? He said, oh, yeah, I'll take the camera again, which is unto itself. Kelly Arborell. But he, he definitely was on the team. <laughs> and... Uh, I said, and then under caution, could I talk to you? Would it be all right if I could ask one question once in a while? And he thought for a while and said, I'll do it on one condition with that. He said, that you will let me to describe the start from inside my car. I said, deal. <laughs> I went back and told him what I'd done. And I said, so when you're coming Don't around... Don't tell him about Bathurst. Huh? <laughs> Don't tell him about Bathurst and what that guy went through. 
And uh, we got the camera in there. I think it was in practice that we began to hear it again. And that thing would just be this thousand cycle tone. (laughs) Then it would go away and then it would come back. And they did everything they could. And there was a wonderful guy on CBS's crew. It was an engineer. And he said, I don't know what the fuck it is. He said, this thing just keeps doing this. <laughs> he said, we've changed everything. We can't stop it. So now, Bush gets to shove. He's coming around. And the guy in the truck, the TV guy, says... I think I know what we've got here. I think I know what it is. It's kale. <laughs> and every time that car would go up on the bank, you know, and he drove with two hands on the top of the wheel, and he'd go, <laughs> And then he'd keep it up. If he was in traffic, and then he'd go away. So... That was a real conundrum, and we finally figured out that if he tur- turned down that, that audio from the car, it wouldn't do it anymore. Wait till he was flat out. And we got the camera in, and was that the first race or the second race? I think it was the second race where he won the thing, yeah. and we we made that thing work, and I, with, he was running fifth or sixth with 20 laps to go, and there was a caution. So we went to him and asked him what he was going to do. And he did a, what do you call it, Babe Ruth? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Called he, the shot. He, he followed up with what he was going to do for the last 10 laps to beat these other motherfuckers. <laughs> but he, he, he gave us a whole description of what he would do to win. That was amazing. So then he got out there, and he he stayed right where he was until about lap 10 or 12 to go. And then he came up through, and then he came up through, and then he came up through. And then he won the race. It was just remarkable. And that was Kaylee Arbro's contribution to the American public. And what it was was the opportunity to make people sitting at home really get a feeling for what they were doing in those cars. And he thought that was a hoot. That <laughs> he had done it because, Jesus, you know, when they get up to 190 miles an hour and they begin to switch around and they're up on the banking and you think at any moment they're through the fence and all that. And back then they were yeah, doing this. Yeah, yeah, and of course, and he was big on that because he had his arms way up here. He's <laughs> a little fella. <laughs> and, and he'd win that way. But you could see him do it. It was just remarkable stuff. So, that won an Oscar for itself or whatever they call those things. Justin and I are both fortunate to have called races from turn one at Thunder Road. Yeah. What was it like for you to bring TNN to Thunder Road with Buddy Baker when NASCAR came back to Thunder Road? To was live. that a proud moment for you to have oh, yeah. national oh, yeah. well, I love TV Baker. there at Thunder Road? And- I, I just watched that race a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, we right. talked about it. Someone was talking about Kip winning the race. And, and of course, that was the first time NASCAR had been back at Thunder Road in yeah. a dozen years or whatever. That must have been a moment of pride for you. Well, it was a moment of relief that the thing worked. Because yeah. usually you'll build up to that and then, gee, I don't know, something went wrong. But that thing worked. 
and to this day, I mean, those is, is the reality of what it's like to be driving that fast and have one guy down here and one guy up here, and you're trying to worm your way through traffic. It's wonderful. It seemed like uh, almost like the proud older brother watching the race. Yeah. <laughs> Buddy Baker's, you know, kind of around, and you're just kind of, hey, watch this. See what's going to happen here. Kip Stockwell won that race as a local kid who grew up at Thunder Road. Yep. And you were there for the infancy of his father's career. And this is on coast-to-coast national TV. Was it? Sure, it was. TNN. Yeah. And he held off Dion and Fadden and Bobby Dragon yeah. and all those guys. Yeah. Fast forward kind of to where we are now. And you sell Thunder Road. Chris comes in, who, you know, everyone knows. Multiple-time champion and Pat Malone. Did you feel good that you left it in good hands? I think it's in good hands. They've they've made some errors, but we made errors. No question. But nothing grows unless you've tried things. And they've tried things, and some things have worked, and some don't. But by and large, that track is still doing well. It's going to do better. Yep, the nation's side of excitement. I think we're going to make a blanket statement here and just say thank you for for all of us as as race fans. Oh, well. I mean, especially Justin and I. We, we, we stole your phrase. as You probably stole it from somewhere else, as you have admitted. I did, but, and I was trying to think, where did I, where did I see that before? Yeah. But uh, you, you know, you put Justin and I on the air, and I will say, I was one of those. You had me come into your office every week oh, after the race, oh, yeah, and we'd listen to chunks of it, and you'd give me notes, and I felt like I learned more in that first season on those little meetings than I did with four years in broadcasting school, which is both exciting and feels like I really wasted a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you could have given me some. <laughs> Look, I'm just an old person trying to get by with an expensive yeah, daughter. <laughs> Funny you mentioned that. Finally, I pawned her off on him. <laughs> that doesn't look like it's going to work either, because now he's gone out and bought a race car. It's going to be up here in the barn. Breaking news. Yeah. <laughs> well... Again, thank you, um, and that's and that's a that's a sixty year thank you, you know. Um, thank you. We, I mean, you did so much for us for so long. Well, we we were given an opportunity and tried to make the most of it, but it was you that put that opportunity in front of us. So it's funny how it works. With you can just have a few people that give you these little tweaks that make a difference, and you were one of those people. Dave Morris was one of those people for me because oh, I was a Hardwick kid, oh, God damn. and he was Dave Morris was the best. But they can give you those little tweaks that just send you in a in the right direction. And you gave me a lot of tweaks, and I appreciate well, you, that. You had a good coach there. Did you ever know Dave Morris? He helped build, he helped build yep. Thunder Road. Remember those railroad ties that were down the front straightaway? Yep. <laughs> Another Ken Squire special. Yeah. Don't get me started on that front straightaway at Thunder Road. 
okay. Those those thirty four frames that pull them right apart. Yeah, <laughs> Jesus. Okay, so again, with no planning, really. <laughs> maybe you, maybe there was planning, but where did that wall come from? Which wall? Well, the the railroad ties, and then you had halfway down the straightaway a, cron- a concrete wall, the Widowmaker in turn four. Was that just well, that went all the way to the top? Well, I know, but why was it? On purpose that it was designed as a ramp? No, no, but it worked out good. Boy, I guess it did. <laughs> Entertainment wise, yeah. 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 The track would not have been Thunder Road without it. Well, I don't know. I can't tell you. I can't tell you. Thanks again to the man, Ken Squire the one we wanted from the beginning that we didn't think we were necessarily ever going to get or if we got it how it was going to sound and so far much like how this podcast has has turned out for us in year one far exceeded expectations yeah well i mean what else could i say that's that's spot on yeah the whole project has it's crazy when we started this podcast, um, Ken Squire was in really, really bad shape a year ago um, after COVID. Um, you know, he really got knocked around by that and it was kind of touch and go for a minute there. You know, we thought we might lose him um, a little bit, but he's uh, fought back and he's just this side of spry. <laughs> I mean, really. He looks good for all he's been through in the last couple of years, man. He looks good. Yeah. He was on it. And like I said, we never really expected when we went that we were going to get an hour and a half of quality podcasting and we got an hour and a half. So we, we were definitely very fortunate and thankful that it worked out the way it did. And much like, we said about the Bucktona podcast. I'm, I'm glad that it worked out this way and that this is running a year in rather than episode two. Cause I think yeah. it'll bring, we have a little more street cred. <laughs> so I hoping it will bring this podcast to more people and more people are going to enjoy it because they should. Yeah. Again, I don't know what else I could say there. You're, you're a hundred percent right. And, Ken Squire deserves to be heard far and wide um, for all of eternity. <laughs> you know, he, the, the sport of auto racing is what it is because of his efforts, um, at least in the U S um, then there's, I'm not over exaggerating on that. Um, I tend to use hyperbole a little bit, but that's not the case here. Um, he is the reason why NASCAR is on TV still. <laughs> I don't know what else to say about that. That's 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 a pretty heavy load to carry on your shoulders, and he's he has been a common man doing uncommon deeds. Make sure if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, leave us that five star review. Helps us with the algorithms, they say. You can do it on Spotify too. Wherever you listen to your podcast, there's usually some kind of like, subscribe, rate. Show us the love, if you will. If you don't like us, well, 
keep your mouth shut and your fingers <laughs> silent. Go listen to another podcast. Then. Listen, hate listen to us. Just yeah, be quiet. Hate listen it. to us. Just give us the click. We really don't yeah. care what you think. Just give us the click. And don't send any bad reviews. That's right. That's what I said. Keep the fingers quiet. <laughs> Off the keyboard, folks. Uh, you know, I'm sure that we do have a bunch of new listeners in the last few weeks as we've kind of stepped out of our box a little bit with Bobby Santos, um, with Kenny Tremont and now with Ken. Um, so welcome to the new listeners and, and stick around. I mean, go back through our catalog and and listen to, we've got a year's worth, um, listen to some of these episodes and there's going to be some names that you don't recognize. And there's going to be some names that you do. And there's going to be stories from every single person that I don't think had been told before. And that's what the show is about. Um, so yeah, and, sit back and enjoy. And if you're one of those new listeners and we're hopeful that we're going to have a decent amount of new listeners to this podcast with this Ken Squire episode, make sure like us on all the socials, uncommon deeds on Twitter and Facebook Uncommon Deeds podcast on the Instagram. The Instagram. We're slowly making our way up towards 3,000 likes on Facebook. That's Mm -hmm. what we are. That's the next goal. We're approaching, I believe, 2,400. We're right around there. So get out there, like it, share it. Invite your friends to like it. Invite their friends to like it. Invite your enemies to like it. Keep them closer. We like we like the hate listens. Absolutely. Keep those enemies closer. It's the way of the ninja. And stay tuned for brand new merch. T-shirts and hats are on the press this week. Uh, we're that's a big one too for us. Yeah, yeah. we have. Uh, I don't want to say dragged our feet with the merch, seeing as how we talked about it around episode maybe three. Yeah, right. But we have waited till we could do it the way we wanted to do it and how we wanted to do it and good quality stuff, and that's what we got. And you know what? You, you buy a shirt from us. Freaking Justin's making that thing. It's me, baby. Justin is pressing those shirts. Yep. I would have uh, had them done a couple of weeks ago, and then I went and got stupid COVID. So that's the delay. The goal was to have them ready for this week for this show and be ready for the one year. But I went and got the coronavirus, and that kind of delayed a lot of stuff. So sorry about that. But Also, if you're interested in being part of our Uncommon Media family, whether you want to sponsor the Uncommon Deeds podcast, the Crunch Bunch podcast, which check that out. That came back this week. Maybe you have a media idea you think we can help you with. I mean, Justin is a hell of a writer and storyteller. I have a degree in video production and radio production. Like, We can help you do some stuff, or maybe you have a podcast idea that you think we can help you with. Get at us on any of those socials or send us an email, uncommonmediavt at gmail.com. We got decals too if you want them. Yep. Shoot us a message. If you have not gotten your Uncommon Deeds 
decals, we give them to you for free. Because that's the kind of guys we are. Yeah. You know? We are. We pay for them, and then we pay to ship them out so you guys can have them, our loyal listeners, for free. Yes. All those words you said. Come back next week as we just keep the ball moving here in year number two with another great guest. We have a clue who it might be. We haven't locked it in, so we're not going to say anything. There's a middleman kind of doing some of the negotiation here, some of the communication, but I think it's going to happen. And I'm excited about that. It's it's going to be, again, a, a piece of our childhood, me and Tom. So make sure to check in for Guess the Guest early next week for your opportunity to win a special edition decal you only get by winning Guess the Guest. Mm-hmm. Precious few. Precious few. Thank you all for listening to the Uncommon Deeds podcast, a production of Uncommon Media.